Hello, survivalists. It's your host, Casey McIntosh, and I'm beyond excited to welcome you back to another episode of the Crux Podcast. Today is truly special because we have an extraordinary guest joining us, none other than the incredible professional climber, Quinn Brett. Picture this, the stunning heights of El Capitan, the heart-pounding rush of speed climbing, and then the unimaginable happens, a 120-foot fall that changes everything. Quinn is here with us today to share her awe-inspiring journey from that pivotal moment on El Capitan to her ongoing path of recovery and adaptation to life with a spinal cord injury, her resilience is beyond words. But that's not the end of her story. Quinn's determination reaches far beyond her personal challenges. She's dedicated to improving access to national parks for people with disabilities, turning her own experience into a catalyst for positive change. So get ready to be captivated by Quinn's remarkable story, her love for the mountains, her unyielding spirit, and her vision of a more inclusive outdoor community will leave you utterly inspired. Without further ado, let's dive into this incredible conversation with Quinn Brett. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, Quinn. How are you doing today? Julie, how are you doing? Hi. Great. Glad to be here. Thanks for joining us today, Quinn. We're excited to talk to you and get to know you a little bit more. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, so I was reading your article in Patagonia, and I was talking about how you were super driven, about how you did lots of family trips and had all sorts of really amazing adventures in the summer with your family, and I thought that was really awesome. And it mentioned how you saw um, El Capitan and that kind of inspired you. How did you end up climbing? What was that inspiration like for you? And what was the beginning of your climbing career like? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So my family, yes, we traveled a lot. We were younger, fortunate enough. My dad had a family tradition of his parents and cousins and all the would pile into the car and, you know, this is now the 60s and 70s, they would pile in the car and work their way west in the summertime uh, and visit national parks. And that was very formulative to my dad. And so that's something that he carried on with my brother and I. And so when we were young, we grew up in Minnesota. Uh, we had their parents' two-week vacation. And we would, like our first trip was, I think, to South Dakota and the Badlands. And we hung out there for a week or two and hiked. I remember I had a fever of 104 and my mom piggybacked me to the top of Harney's Peak because there it's like, well, we're on vacation and she's easy to piggyback. So let's do that. <laughs> but then that just developed as we got older, we got further and further West away from Minnesota with the family vacations. And then it just turned into more and more adventuring. So we started out hiking and then we started dabbling with 
backcountry camping and carrying the giant backpacks, you know, but when I was five or six or seven or something, we were backcountry camping. And then by the time I was in seventh or eighth grade, my brother and I were kind of scrambling on rocks and I don't know, at the campsites, just exploring a little bit more. And so, yes, by the time I arrived at Yosemite, when I was, golly, I think I was a freshman or sophomore year in high school during that time. And I had already, my eyes had been open to rock climbing. I had asked my parents to go rock climbing a few times, um, and they bought me a climbing rope and a few other things. And again, growing up in Minnesota, it wasn't the most available sport, but at least I had some of the equipment. Uh, and so when I stared at a bell cap for the first time in ninth or 10th grade, yeah, I was like, Dad, I want to climb that someday. That's amazing. I've done a little bit of climbing. And of course, like the Bozeman area where Julie is has a lot of easily accessible climbing. And I just have to say that you must have a lot of balls because anytime <laughs> that I even thought about lead climbing, I was like, no, I, I don't think so. And I mean, I enjoy climbing, but that the drive and the courage that you have must be just, it's very daunting, I think. It is daunting, but it even was daunting then, you know, like as a kid, I was scared for sure. Every time you're at the edge of the cliff, even after 20 years of climbing, you get to, if I would set up like I was working a harder route and I was setting up a top rope and the cliff is abrupt from like a tabletop and you're at the very top and now you have to like scoot yourself over the edge. Like even after 20 years of climbing, it's still like, oh my God, are my systems in the place? Am I doing all the things right? Double check, double check, triple check. Yeah. That feeling of fear is just so real towards Eureka I've done a little bit of climbing there and there are a couple top ropes like you're describing where you have to trust that you did everything right and then just go over that ledge and hope that everything is gonna stay where you put it yeah but just like everything in life your tolerance our tolerance builds as we do things I notice when I'm interacting with folks I guess in more regular life settings that my tolerance for adversity or dangerous things. I'm like, it's not that I'm not aware that maybe I might drown any second, but what's the use of getting panicked about it in that moment? <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's for me situational. Some situations I have a little bit more tolerance than others, but if there's definitely a big head game that goes into being able to manage those risks, push past the fear that you have. So you did all that basically from that point in Yosemite, what was the transition from that point to like doing big wall climbing? Hmm. It took a while. Yeah. So then I was there, I was in there in eighth or ninth grade or so and came back to high school. They, for some reason, growing up in Minnesota, yes, they bought me a climbing rope for Christmas one year. And then the next year I got quick draws. And then the next year I got the book, How to Rock Climb by John Long. And so I was getting all the equipment, but I, I didn't have my own car. The one climbing gym was across in St. Paul, and so I didn't really have access to it. I think, and my brother, of course, he's older, but he wasn't going to drive me because I was not cool enough to hang out <laughs> But by the time I got to freshman year of college, like being on campus at the University of Minnesota now, there was like, I found out public transportation, which of course was around all before, but I just wasn't privy to it or think to use it. Uh, but used public transportation to get to the gym or found friends with cars to go to the gym. And then also we're like, hey, you have the car, so let's take you... I know that I have the equipment and the skills to go rock climbing in northern Minnesota at this place called Taylor's Falls. Uh, if you drive, I'll teach you how to do that stuff. So it was just kind of a, a relationship that I built with folks. And then a girlfriend, um, girlfriend, I worked at a coffee shop in college, and she worked out at Estes Park at a camp, the YMCA of the Rockies, and was like, hey, I worked at this camp. And so I went out there one of the summers to work in my college years and didn't want to come back because there was a 
whole bunch of rock climbing and mountain biking and all the fun outdoorsy things. And so as soon as I graduated, I beelined it back here to Estes Park, Colorado. And that's when I would say met rock climbers and had mentors to teach me how to do this stuff and the things. And I didn't end up climbing on El Cap until I was 27 or 28. So, you know, 10 or 15 years after I was like, I'm going to do that. (laughs) And then you were working for the national park at one point. I finally got a job, secured a job here in Rocky Mountain National Park as a technical climbing ranger. So we do search and rescue. Essentially, I akin it to, you know, you have EMT crews in the city and they either have a safe house or they drive in their ambulance. Uh, but at Rocky Mountain National Park and we were then just out in the field hiking all day every day. Uh, that way we're roaming around like the ambulance roams around the city. We're roaming around the national park ready and available if an incident occurred. And those incidences were people just getting lost to rolled ankles and they don't think they can hike out to body recoveries and lightning patients and yeah, all the gamut of experiences. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about what led to your experience on October 11th, 2017. Like what was going on in your life during that time frame? Watched Julie and I, of course, watched your movie, An Accidental Total Life. Sorry, I can't speak. We watched your movie, An Accidental Life. And, you know, it seemed like there was a lot of hesitation between both you and your climbing partner. Did you guys talk about that before you started climbing or sort of something that you shoved down and pushed away? And uh, I was a seasonal climbing ranger, so I worked from the months of April into the end of September. And in the winter months, I taught wilderness EMT courses, which are like month-long courses all over the United States. And then those weren't every month. And so in the months off, I would travel and climb from Yosemite to Zion National Park to Argentina or elsewhere across the globe. Uh, and so I had just finished my climbing ranger season and I had the month of October off and had planned to spend it in Yosemite National Park. Yes, and I arrived and Josie and I had some big plans. We were training for some bigger link-ups. So I have a few speed records on um, El Cap, like climbing fast with other female partners or climbing two routes in a day on El Cap or this other endeavor called Seven Walls in Seven Days. We climbed every big wall in Yosemite seven days consecutively in a row. Josie and I had done big adventures like that. And the day or two prior to my injury, uh, we had gotten news of another friend who had died in an avalanche. He and his girlfriend had died in an avalanche um, in Montana. I remember that from your movie, the mention there, local folks here to where I live. Yeah, and so they were really good friends with us and um, just in our community in general. And so, but Josie and I had, you know, on the calendar, like, hey, on Wednesday, we're going to go do this endeavor. Uh, Tuesday evening, we went to sleep and we both just didn't sleep very well. She woke me up Wednesday morning and was like, hey, can we sleep a little longer? Uh, So we reset the alarms and got up like an hour or two later and then decided to go. Yeah, our brains were, our hearts were definitely saddened, but as we do often in life, and I've learned throughout the many unfortunate deaths and losses that I've had in my life is that we distract for a while afterwards. We it doesn't mean that we're not facing it or that we're not ready to face it, but um, it seems easier at the moment to distract. And I don't know that Josie and I were specifically distracting, but that was just habitual. Like, what else are we going to do? We're not. We can't just sit in the meadow and mourn for our friends and their loss. Like, let's go move. They would love us to be being active and moving, is what we always say, right? People want us to be appreciative and moving. Uh, or doing our life as we would otherwise. So we did. Uh, so we went climbing that day. Um, and yes, maybe our hearts weren't fully into it, but 
uh, we went climbing and we usually lead. So what happens when you're climbing fast on El Cap, our tactic is that one person leads half the mountain with the climbing rope trailing below them back to their partner. And then when we get halfway up the mountain at this particular spot, we then switch and then Josie would lead to the top half of the mountain and I would follow her taking out all the gear behind her. Um, and I was moving quite swiftly and I was literally 40 feet from the top of where we were gonna switch positions. And I definitely had a distracted moment. Uh, Hayden is the name of the gentleman who died. Hayden came to my mind because he and I had a few conversations about falling on El Cap. He had taken a pretty big fall on El Cap uh, years prior and we sat down by the river and talked about it and just the consequences that were there for him. So he has, he came to my mind and I climbed and I climbed and next thing you know, I was looking for a piece of gear on my left or my right hand side and then the granite was swooshing before me and it's kind of all I know that I remember. I know that I woke up in the spin. I got, I, I hit the rock pretty hard and went unconscious and my helmet fell off and I fell face forward into some rubble and I vaguely remember my climbing partner coming down and being rescued off, but those are all very vague memories. So I would say the most consistent is Hayden hand jamming and then granite swooshing below me. That's crazy that you had that thought in your head right before that happened. It's just ironic a little bit. Yeah, you know, I think... That, who knows? Like, I don't think I made it up. I'm very cognizant of like, let's not try to shift the stories in our heads. Uh, but I remember saying that, telling people that story in the hospital. And I knew that I was in a dangerous situation. In speed climbing, often you don't leave a lot of gear behind. So the space between your gears, far and few between. So meaning if you fall, you're going to fall twice the distance that your last piece of gear was below you. So if, if my last piece of gear is 20 feet below me, I'm definitely falling 40 and then there's some rope stretch, so maybe more. And so, yes, in total, I was quite a ways out from my gear, and it's, they think I fell between 100 and 120 feet. And then there's some nice visuals in your movie that show El Capitan, and it looked to me like you fell that distance and sort of landed on a ledge or some sort of an outcropping. Is that correct? Yeah, there's a piece of rock that sticks out away from the main cliff, and it's like a giant... Uh, like if you were building a house, like the side frame of a house, it's the, quite a big wall of granite that sticks out uh, and it's called Texas Flake. And it only sticks out away from the main cliff, maybe three or four feet at its most. Uh, and so, yes, I fell vertically uh, and a lot of people take big falls on El Cap, etc. But their luck is that there is not other this other piece of rock jutting out away from the cliff. And I hit that piece of rock. Um, and I hit it mostly with my right scapula and my back. And the way that it's angled, I think I got lucky in that it's kind of angled at a 45 degree to the ground. And so had it been a blunt edge, I probably wouldn't be here speaking to you. Uh, but because it was angled, I think I kind of like hit it on an angle and was able to, wasn't able to. I just naturally slid down it kind of and my helmet flung off. Yes. And then I flung forward into the rubble uh, and my rope was still attached. I just, there was a lot of slack in the rope. <laughs> Had you ever had falls before that fall that were kind of risky? Um, yeah, I mean, as a climber, like I remember even when I first started rock climbing, like way back in the day, I was climbing down in Golden, Colorado, and just learning how to lead climb and sport climb, and I had the rope behind me by accident, and I took a fall, a very small fall. I was climbing over a roof, but because the rope was behind my leg, it flipped me upside down, and I got a pretty good rope burn. And I had a helmet on, so things happen of that nature, but never to that gravity. <laughs> 
So you woke up in the hospital, like say the same day or the day later, what was your experience when you finally came to? Uh, so I came to, I was kind of there cognizantly, which like in the movie, you can actually see, I think in the video, like I'm that, a big picture, I guess, that friends and family who saw because it got published in the news was as I was getting helicoptered off the mountain, I'm holding on to the litter, like the, the line that's rescuing me. Uh, and so I guess that was a big indicator as it should be to people like, well, her brain is still working and she's still alive because she's holding on to something grabbing. Um, and so I was very cognizant then and we landed in the meadow at the base of El Cap and they were like, Quinn, we're transferring you helicopters. And I said something about, I can't afford that. Um, and then, then we had to go from the rescue helicopter to the medical helicopter. And as soon as the medical helicopter came in, there was a line in my arm and yes, then I was out for days. <laughs> And then, yes, woke up into the hospital and being close to Yosemite National Park, many climbing friends, like my parents were a little overwhelmed. They had arrived and family and friends were in and out and in and out, kind of, you know, great, but also overwhelming if your daughter had just had this tra traumatic injury to be overwhelmed by kind of too many people, which I'm thankful for that they were there. It wasn't too many for me at all, but... <laughs> Casey and I were talking after we watched your movie and we both agreed one of the most notable or profound things about the film was just the amount of support and friendship and just love your, your people showed um, in the movie. It was beautiful. Yeah, it kind of makes you wonder like, okay, if something happened to me, who would show up? It was kind of like a funeral. Like I got to see all the people that showed up to my funeral, a death, a death of an age of Quinn, essentially. So how long were you um, in the hospital setting before you got cut free? Uh, I got flown directly from Yosemite National Park to Modesto, uh, and I was there for five or six weeks. I was in the ICU. Uh, I didn't have my back surgery. Usually it's wild, like when you look back medically. I didn't have my back surgery right away, and I think there was one, they didn't have the hardware on in stock <laughs> to put in my back. Uh, and I, too, I think there was a lot of like family conundrums happening. Uh, my mom was in Mexico on a work trip and she had to get there. And the man I was dating at the time, just like lots of miscommunications and stuff. So I didn't actually have my back surgery until the following Monday, which is quite a long time um, to have spinal stabilization surgery. And then I got an infection. I was in the ICU maybe for another week. Then I moved out, but then I got an infection in my abs, um, just from the surgery, I think. Um, and so I had to hang out there for another while until the IV antibiotics were through because no other hospital wanted to take me until you had to get rid of this thing because they didn't want to take me if I'm infected with this thing, you know. So I couldn't go to Craig Hospital, which is Denver, Colorado, which uh, is where I until five or six weeks later. And then I was there in inpatient recovery for five or six weeks. Just that was like I arrived on Thanksgiving. I got discharged around New Year's and then they move you over to outpatient and they have this lovely program where essentially you're at the hospital setting but you move over to these apartment buildings across the street uh, and where you can practice like you don't have a nurse coming in on you every day but now you're practicing living alone in your own little apartment and before you actually transition home alone. One thing that Julie and I were talking about after we watched the film was just you were mentioning some of the symptoms that you had with your injury. And it's just even as PAs, you know, we, things that we hadn't really considered, like chronic pain and all of these other things. Um, do you want to talk to that about like some of these things that like just the general population doesn't know about spinal cord injuries? Yeah, there's this lovely diagram out there that you could Google and it shows an iceberg, right? And it's like spinal cord injury. The top half is like, yeah, you look at us and you see folks 
a lot of us using wheelchairs, either manual wheelchairs or power wheelchairs, because we've lost the muscular use. Of, but below the surface in that glacier picture is below that, below all the surface that you can't see with us. It's like, yes, I can't actually feel my legs. I can't, or I have confused sense of my legs. Uh, for me, I can put cold water on my legs and they actually respond. Like they do a little muscle spasm. I, my brain doesn't feel that, but my legs are doing their own down there. So everyone has their own little nuances of like my buddy Joe, he can actually feel some stuff on the left side of his body versus the right side of his body. Just how the messages are so snowflake for everyone. Um, yes. And then there's neuropathic pain, which I struggle with, with a lot. So from my injury level, which is a T12 spinal cord injury. So underwear lined down, no movement, no sensation, but I have this lovely constant burning tingling all the time. Like feels like I'm in a bug zapper and when it's on bad days like lightning bolts are hitting me and then there's the risk of pressure sores because we're sitting all the time I'm at lesser risk knock on wood because I have tricep function to push myself out of my chair and get off my butt cheeks and I'm such a mover anyway so I wear like looser shoes anything that can but if you're a power wheelchair user you that's why you'll see them often the power chair tilt and then they're in this reclined mode from time to time. That's just to get weight off their ischial crests or the ischials and then to come back for changing positions off their butts. And then higher level injuries, they have diaphragm issues, like maybe they can or can't breathe on their own. Maybe we have autonomic dysreflexia where we get all lightheaded and we can't sweat and we can't control our blood pressure. Huh, all of these lovely things that you're like, cool. Look at that person over there. They're just sitting and that sucks. Yeah, it sucks because of all the other things, not just the sitting. <laughs> was the adaptive biking for you, was that sort of your outlet to, you know, active freedom that you had before your accident? Do you feel like that gave you a little bit of a renewed excitement about what you can still do? Absolutely. I would say for me as such a, you know, as a climber, but more of a mover uh, as like the speed records are indicating, like, I just like to move across terrain fast, be it like just hiking fast up a mountain or running across ridges, mellow ridges. Um, and so the hand cycle, well, I'm not on mellow ridges or climbing anymore. Um, I, it still can take a forest service road and hand cycle my way up to the top and get a view and move and move my heart. And then which moves my mind um, or calms my mind more likely. Um, but yes, the hand cycle is probably the closest way for me to adventure and get back out there again. I think it's so cool what has come to pass with technology with bikes. I'm sure there's a long way to go. I was reading an article that was talking about your battery life when you were doing, what was it Tour Divide, right? Yes, the Tour Divide, which is a bicycle route from Banff, Canada to Antelope Wells, New Mexico. So how many miles is that route? Uh, it's like just under 3,000, but they've added a little section to Jasper, Canada, if you want, so that's where I biked from Jasper all the way down. So like 3,000 miles. Yeah, how long did you spend doing that? What was the time frame? Uh, we did the border to border. That was during COVID, so the Canada border wasn't open. So I, we did border to border, the U.S. to New Mexico or to Mexico it was 25 days. So we averaged 100 mm. miles a day. And then the following season, when the border was open, that's when we were like, "Well, they've extended the route to Jasper, so let's go from Jasper back to the Eureka, Montana, where my buddy Jason lives." Uh, and that, yeah, we did that again. Mm. Yeah. Are you like camping along the route as you're going or where do you stay? Both. It's a mix because it's, um, the route travels through so much towns and such. And then sometimes, so sometimes you're like three or four days. If you're going hundred miles, like you can time it up like, cool, I'm going to go from Whitefish to uh, Ovando or whatever it is. 
um, you can kind of plan it to be near hotels or wherever they are and then other sections and it's two or three days or four days that maybe you're camping. Yeah. That sounds like a really cool adventure. (laughs) It was beautiful. I'm curious if there are other things, other um, interests that you've developed in recent years that have similarly quenched your thirst for adventure and for freedom, similar to the biking, other things that you're involved with? Yeah, I'll Nordic ski and downhill ski. And I do like doing a lot of water activities like kayaking or paddle boarding and river, river boating. Um, and they're all fantastic. And some of them are, it seems like boating in particular is great because when you're on the water, it feels like an equalizer, like everyone's sitting in a boat. Um, in rougher classes of water, it's more difficult, obviously. Like I don't have my lower half to like brace myself. I've noticed in like deeper, steeper rollers of water, I like, I have a tendency, like I could actually flip over backwards because my legs can't push down on the front of the boat to like stabilize myself. So I'm thankful for those things, but I will say overall, I still like, I might go on my hand cycle. Like today I will for after work, um, for a two hour bike ride and be outside, but I just don't, it doesn't get my heart rate up the way that I want, or it's not as satiating as like going for a 45 minute run. Unfortunately, I'm happy and I'm pleased that I can get out, but it's just not as good. And Nordic skiing definitely is hardworking and I can get, it gets your heart rate up, but my little arm muscles aren't as big as my leg muscles. So I can't sustain it for as long. (laughs) I'm sure that's gotta be pretty frustrating when you're used to being Doing all of those other things. I saw that you did triathlon at one point. I always used to try to do one a year. (laughs) Okay. So that means you're good. I saw in the video that you were doing some swimming too. Yeah, I go. So I'd say like that's my sport when I was little was gymnastics and swimming. (laughs) Julie's a pretty good swimmer, I think. Right, Julie? (laughs) (laughs) That was my sport growing up too, is swimming. Always. I was a big swimmer. It was like my only sport when I was in high school and younger. And I'm trying to make it my kid's sport, but I'm failing at that (laughs) right now. (laughs) Which I'm thankful for too, right? Like that's the one thing in the hospital that was like the first thing. It was like, get me in the water. I just Mm. float and get in the water. And yes, it sucks because my legs now are so much drag behind me, but it's still something. (laughs) I saw in the film that you put, it it looked at like seeing, um, putting little ankle floats on your ankles to kind of keep them keep your legs up behind you. Yeah. Does that help? It's okay. I don't love it because I have the, because of that giant metal rod in my back, uh, having too much buoyancy, like kind of feels weird. Cause then my back's all stiff and it's kind of funky. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. As of the last couple of years, I've just used a neoprene Velcro strap around my thighs to keep my legs together, which works. Okay. Mm-hmm. The Velcro is wearing out. Uh, but a friend right now, another paralyzed friend is kind of trying to create something. He's using like PVC pipes, uh, so essentially what we need is like something that keeps our legs, yes, together, but to keep the knees from bending so much, like how do we streamline the legs? So he's, he just uses using PVC pipes that he's cut in half and padding the inside of them. So our legs are nicely padded and then putting those around the knee joint. So it's stabilizing above and below and, and then it kind of straightens. And he has a great video of like before and after, like when we're swimming before, you can just see our legs like kind of dolphin kicking, but not meaning to behind us. And then he puts that, the PVC pipes on and I'm like, oh, look at we're streamlined, yay. <laughs> that's so cool. That's great. Yeah, that's cool that you're figuring. One of the 
things, one of the messages I got from the film was that there felt to you like maybe a lack of search and support and service and um, information and available um, for folks with spinal cord injury. If that's still, you know, mean that uh, you notice or if that's gotten better in recent years? I think slowly, absolutely. I think social media is helping in that way of just like, A, we are getting out there because there is new technology, uh, like these hand cycles or like my buddy Justin inventing this swimming thing, all of it, like because there's new technology and there's social media, it's like showing that, hey, look at these people with disabilities doing this badass stuff. Holy cow, let's make some more badass stuff for them. So I think it's improving a little bit, but yeah, it's incredible, you know, to break be breaking world records on one end of my life and then to be entered into this world of like, really? We're still using technology from 1974? What are we doing? How come we haven't gotten any better when we have all the, like we have AI, all these crazy things. How are we not being, how, how can we use those things to do good for people who could actually use it for their mobility or disability, blind, deaf, whatever. I thought it was interesting that you were working with that paradox group before mm-hmm. your accident and you were doing some work, some conservation work for the now. I was just curious, like how those experiences, do you feel like they helped you at all post accident? Um, definitely like knowing I'm working for paradox sports, which is a um, adaptive climbing organization based here in Boulder, Colorado. Yes, like just knowing other, being involved with people with disabilities before my injury and I guess having 1% of compassion that I do now, uh, you know, thinking at that point that I had compassion and I knew what disabilities were like, I think that was helpful for sure, Um, but we still don't know until now I know, I really know. And I only know for me, I know with mobility disabilities and what mine looks like. and then yes, doing all the like climb the hill, for instance, as a professional rock climber and going to DC and um, speaking about the importance of our of climbing as a recreational activity in our public lands. And then now to be thrust into this world of like, well, now as a person with a disability, access to our public lands is even more so for my well-being and for my whole community's well-being. Um, I think it gave me, ironically, to say like the voice that I needed, the voice of maybe what our public lands needed for a kick, a swift kick of like, hey, people with disabilities, that one mile paved trail in the busiest parts of our public lands is not what we're looking for. <laughs> we are capable of way more and we desire way more. <laughs> right. And your passion for that is so much stronger than if you hadn't gone through the experience. Well, absolutely. I mean, I'd give this experience back in a heartbeat to have my legs, but at the same time, I'm like, I'm very thankful for this experience. <laughs> Yeah, because think of how many people potentially are going to be able to experience public lands in that way as a result of you and the work that you're doing, which is amazing. Which on that note, maybe if you would, um, would love to hear just a little bit more about the work that you're up to nowadays, currently. Yeah, so um, having fallen into this, legitimately fallen into Uh, recreating in our public lands. As a gentleman saw me speak at an event early on in my injury. Bob Radcliffe is his name. He's a great human who has worked for the National Park Service for 30, 40 years. He just retired last year, uh, but he wasn't retired yet. And he saw me speak and he was like, hey, Quinn, there's a place for you in the National Park still. Um, and so he kind of crafted job for me, piecemealing it together with three different, uh, two or three years after my injury, I was back with the National Park Service, kind of cultivating a role of speaking out loud. And I've since moved on from the National Park Service. I'm now with U.S. Fish and Wildlife and then have been doing some private consulting 
on the side for um, other things with my other buddy Joe who lives in Teton he's the executive director for Teton Adaptive Sports he and I have paired up and we do a lot of consult on this topic in particular because we are so passionate about it as we all know like that movement through the outdoors is beneficial in a lot of ways to our mental health and our physical health and people with disabilities even more so because if I can't get my heart rate up as high as you guys can or I need to move so I am not having pressure sores like all of those secondary issues this almost even puts more gravity to the need of our experiences in, the, in recreating. For sure. Are there any organizations that you are support, trying to gather support for? Um, I would say, well, the biggest one that I push people towards always is because I'm a board member and also trying to pass spinal cord injury bills. So uh, bills that help fund spinal cord injury recently is Unite to Fight Peru. They are based in Minneapolis, but they we have worked together, I think, collectively now. We've passed bills in five or seven states or something. We're working more, um, which means permanent fund to that state. Uh, and of course the selling point is like what it brings back in pharmaceutical um, tech companies and such. Like we're gonna bring more revenue to your state if we can provide, you know. And spinal cord injury research not only translates just to spinal cord injury, but to other neurological diseases, MS, ARC, uh, Alzheimer's, all of those things. And so research neurologically helps us all. <laughs> That's awesome. I just want to ask you a few questions just so we can get to know you a little bit better, just for fun. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Ooh. Back <laughs> in the day, cookie dough. That's a hard Like if it's Oreo cookies or toffee or strawberry. Those are all good. Oh, yes. I was thinking, I was like, nobody sold me this. But when I was little, like we went to, oh, what was it called? Bridgman's or something in Minnesota. And they had like bubblegum ice cream. Like, no, no. Oh. That's... <laughs> Okay, I'll steer my kids clear away from that flavor. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is your favorite movie? Ooh, what is my favorite movie? Well, in the high school years, I would have said like Tommy Boy. Lately, I've uh, Jason and I just watched The Jerk, which I freaking oh, think is so that is great. a classic. Yeah. Um, and we quote that movie in our house like on a weekly basis and have for 15 years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of like no, more new agey ones. Yeah. That's okay. Sure, I sure. don't really watch very many movies now, but the one that I was thinking about is a big Lebowski. That's one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. I do love that. And Ted Lasso, like right now that whole Ted Lasso series, that's not a movie, but I love that show. Yeah. That's so good. It's so we good. We just need more of that, like feel good, happy stuff <laughs> on TV. I've got one for you. If you can remember, what is the first music album that you purchased with your own money? Oh, dude, kind of embarrassing, but I don't know that it was either gifted to me or I purchased it, but it was the Garth Brooks six CD set. And I'm not even a big country girl, but somehow I got, I, I listened, that was all I listened to forever. Cause I worked this night job. And I took my dad's car because it had the CD player. And so driving the night job, that's all I had to listen to was this Garth Brooks over and over and over again. And you had six CDs to choose from. So yeah, that could keep you going for a while. Oh, I haven't listened to them ever since. It's so funny to listen to those CDs from those formative years because it totally brings you right back. It's so weird. What was your first, Julie? It was Def Leppard, Pyromania. And it was a tape. It was a tape. <laughs> 
Oh, see, actually, Blondie, like for my Christmas way back in the day, I got it. I used to listen to my dad's Billy Joel tapes before. I love me some Billy Joel. In fact, all the time. I do too. I could listen to that now. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we all have that in common, I guess. Okay, one more question for you, and then we'll let you go on with your day. What is something that people don't know about you that you're willing to share? I mean, you've already shared a whole lot of your life. You've really put it out there, which I think is so awesome. I thought your movie was beautiful, by the way. But what is something that we wouldn't know about you? Hmm. Well, I, I thought of this when we first started talking today about tolerance and how it like you just get used to things where you can try harder. I can be very mellow of like physical things, obviously, like pushing myself physically in sport. But man, I like emotionally, sometimes I get so anxious, like with relationships. I'm always like ruminating over my relationships with people all the time. How did I act? How did I do? How could I do better? I think I can relate to that. Feeling. When you're a kid, you're thrown into a lot of things and you just go with it. At least with my kids, I'm like, I'm dropping you off. Bye. You know, it's like, oh, you're going skiing. You're going doing all these things. And they school year, you're thrown into a classroom with all these new people constantly. And as adults, we don't really do that as much. So you get kind of bad at it. And recently I met a friend and it was kind of going through those same things that you were talking about where you're like, should I text them? Should I not text them? Should I wait for them to text me? Am I calling too much? It makes you feel like you're going crazy. It does. I know. And then like pile on disability in the first place. Like I already had that before as a human. Like I was always, I don't want to, if I ask you once Casey for something, I don't want to ask again because then I'm a neg. Uh, and so I already had that prior to injury, but now with disability, like I already feel like a burden and I more so feel like a burden. And so it's just this other deeper layers of just like, oh my God, somebody or the, the negative self-talk is. If I really run hard for a long time, then I'm not thinking about those things anymore because I'm just hurting too much physically to think about it. Right, which is which is hard now, which is why I say like nothing is satiating. I'm like it's not mm -hmm. because my tolerance was so high that it got these things and my brain tolerance, like what I, so yeah, I'm like, of course I'm meditating and I'm trying to do all of these things, but it's a lot of work. You know, you should try is art because whenever I do art, that's another thing that takes so much of my focus that I forget that the rest of the world exists. It's pretty awesome. Even if it's <laughs> terrible art, it still works. See, I do watercolor, but right then it's like 30 minutes lived. I need it. What I need to do is like start a huge freaking project. <laughs> yeah, I can pull you into the moment, kind of like exercise, I think, mm -hmm. in a way that creativity. Mm -hmm. I do have one more question for you if you're up on an hour here. This is more of just curiosity. Um, I'm picturing that scene in the film where you are being flown on the litter from the helicopter off of the face. And just with your background that you've described in Estes Park for the Park Service and teaching the wilderness EMT classes, I just imagine at that moment in time or at the time in your life when you had your accident, you probably knew so much about being on the other side of a situation like that, or you knew what the outcomes might be. And I wonder if that background experience, that knowledge, how you felt in that moment or affected your recovery in ways. Uh, I think I have two thoughts while you were speaking there. One was yes. I think I was such in trauma brain that I wasn't as cognitively aware, but I definitely was aware of, at least after the fact, like hearing that the winds were getting higher and that they were rushing the rescue, like of us as rescuers pushing it often 
because we want to get the mission done. And then, of course, now they're pushing it more because these people on that rescue team knew me. I was staying at some of their houses. So, like, now you're not just rescuing somebody else on the cliff. Like, you're not, you're pushing your protocol a little bit. So, from that lens. Um, and then, second, when you were speaking, it made me think of continuity of care. And as emergency medical rescuers, like, yes, we're not, and HIPAA of all those things, like, yes, we don't act sometimes. It's not encouraged or we don't necessarily follow through on that continuity of care, but that's something I struggled with as a professional search and rescuer, like wondering how that kid is that I just spent 12 hours walking down the mountain with. Where is he now? And we had jokes and we had personal vulnerable times, you know, like I wish that there was more opportunity for that. And I think for the rescuer's sake, though, like, yes, we are after action um, AMAs, but it's not those things are like there and they're diligent, but we don't necessarily encourage the talking. So I know many of my coworkers still struggle with mental health issues because how many dead bodies have they picked up this last year? And yes, we're giving you a platform to talk about it, but are we actually cultivating a space that you feel okay talking about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that was like a weird segue, but those are things in the medical realm and professional EMT services now. Like, how can we provide that better? <laughs> Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing that. I do. It's, it's coming slowly but surely. Talking about stress injuries and psychological aid and things that terms that we wouldn't even be familiar with ten or fifteen years ago, mm-hmm. but maybe not fast enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. Yeah, there's things happening out there. My friend Laura McLadry is doing a lot of good work in different part and their technical search rescues. And then like even after injury, my one of my climbing partners. I wasn't it, but she started the climbing grief in partnership with the Access Fund and the American Alpine Club. So like, there's a lot of injuries that happen in climbing. And if you're, if my, Josie, my climbing partner, needs support also, not just me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is she still climbing? Yeah. Josie is still climbing, yes. Yeah, I think that would be a really hard first day out after what happened with the two of you, you know, to move past that it would be challenging. Yep, absolutely. Well, I th- anything else, Quinn, that you would want to share in terms of like, how can we find your film, you or support, you know, any organizations, any other little plugs that you'd like to share? Look up Unite to Fight Paralysis if you're interested in supporting spinal cord research and just learning about where we are in technology and the process along the way, where research has come from, how close we are and how many things we've we are cl- if you're interested in adaptive sports and helping out those things, I would look up the High Fives Foundation or the Kelly Brush Foundation. Um, Truckee and Kelly Brown, Vermont, uh, and those are great avenues. Or Move United Sport, they're a way to connect with uh, if you want to volunteer with skiers or basketball playing or go hand cycling with folks with disabilities if you have time to volunteer. And then, yeah, you can find me on dovetailtrails.com or Quindalina is my Instagram. (laughs) And then the film, at least I watched it on Apple, right? Um, Where else can we find it? Yep, you can find the film is called An Accidental Life. And I know you can find it, yep, on Apple TV and Amazon. Awesome. We'll put all of that stuff in the show notes so people can access all of that stuff really easily. Thank you so much, Quinn. It's so great to to hear kind of hear it from you. Yeah, when you're in Montana, again, I'm going to have to buy you some ice cream. <laughs> we'll buy you some bubble, not bubble gum. It seems no. like I'm making an annual pilgrimage like now. Jason, this is the third summer up at Jason, so hopefully next summer will be the 
So Good. there's hope that I can buy you non-bubble gum flavored ice cream someday. Because ice cream is basically <laughs> my favorite thing. And I pretty much eat it every day. And I have no guilt or shame about that. That's funny because as I learn languages, that's like the one thing I ask. Uh, like, how do I say I want ice cream? I remember Gali way back in the day. It's like 15 years ago. I learned how to say I want ice cream in Greek. And, and then we were there and like the guy said, Thelo, like he, he was like, I want to, he like, he wanted to take us somewhere. We were in the taxi and I was like, Thelo Pogato. And he's like, you know, Greek. And I was like, no, like, no. I just don't know how to say it. I want ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are very few words in the English language or any language that are more important than those. <laughs> yeah. It seems like a good thing to know how to say in, in many yeah. languages. Thank you for joining us on this insightful journey through the life and experiences of Quinn Bratt in today's episode of the Crux Podcast. Quinn's story is a testament to the strength of the human spirit and the resilience that can emerge from even the most challenging circumstances. We hope that hearing Quinn's stories left you inspired and as moved as we are. If you want to delve even deeper into her incredible journey, don't miss the opportunity to watch her movie, An Accidental Life, available on Apple TV and Amazon TV. It's a chance to witness her courage and determination firsthand. Stay connected with us to discover more compelling stories of survival and triumph. Follow us on Instagram at the Crux Podcast for updates on upcoming episodes and behind the scenes insights. Have a story to share or a question to ask? Reach out to us at thecruxsurvival at gmail.com. Remember the stories we share on the Crux Podcast remind us that in the face of adversity, the human spirit can shine brightest. Thanks for being a part of our community and for your continual support. And I hope you have a wonderful Monday.